Chapter 26 of A Sun at the Front. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Claire Wilde. A Sun at the Front by Edith Wharton. Chapter 26. From the room where he sat at the foot of George's glossy white bed, Campton, through the open door, could watch the November sun slanting down a white ward where, in the lane between other white beds, pots of chrysanthemums stood on white covered tables. Through the window, his eyes rested incredulously on a court enclosed in monastic arches of grey stone, with squares of turf bordered by box hedges and a fountain playing. Beyond the court sloped the faded foliage of a park not yet entirely stripped by channel gales. And on days without wind, instead of the boom of the guns, the roar of the sea came faintly over intervening heights and hollows. Campton's ears were even more incredulous than his eyes. He was gradually coming to believe in George's white room, the ward beyond, the flowers between the beds, the fountain in the court. But the sound of the sea still came to him, intolerably but unescapably, as the crash of guns. When the impression was too overwhelming, he would turn away from the window and cast his glance on the bed, but only to find that the smooth young face on the pillow had suddenly changed into that of the haggard, bearded stranger on the wooden pallet at Doulon. And Campton would have to get up, lean over, and catch the twinkle in George's eyes before the evil spell was broken. Few words passed between them. George, after all these days, was still too weak for much talk, and silence had always been Campton's escape from feeling. He never had the need to speak in times of inward stress, unless it were to vent his anger, as in that hateful scene at Doulon between himself and Mr Brandt. But he was sure that George always knew what was passing through his mind, that when the sea boomed, their thoughts flew back together to that other scene, but a few miles and a few days distant, yet already as far off, as much an affair they were both rid of, as a nightmare to awakened sleeper, and that for a moment the same vision clutched them both, mocking their attempts at indifference. Not that the sound, to Campton at any rate, suggested any abstract conception of war. Looking back afterward at this phase of his life, he perceived that at no time had he thought so little of the war. The noise of the sea was, to him, simply the voice of the engine which had so nearly destroyed his son. That association, deeply embedded in his half-dazed consciousness, left no room for others. The general impression of unreality was enhanced by his not having yet been able to learn the details of George's wounding. 
After a week, during which the boy had hung near death, the great surgeon, returning to Doulon just as Campton had finally ceased to hope for him, had announced that though George's state was still grave, he might be moved to a hospital at the rear. So, one day, miraculously, the perilous transfer had been made in one of Mrs Brandt's own motor ambulances. And for a week now, George had lain in his white bed, hung over by white-gowned sisters, in an atmosphere of sweetness and order, which almost made it seem as if he were a child recovering from illness in his own nursery, or a red-haired baby sparring with dimpled fists at a new world. In truth, Campton found his son as hard to get at as a baby. He looked at his father with eyes as void of experience, or at least of any means of conveying it. Campton, at first, could only marvel and wait, and the isolation in which the two were enclosed by George's weakness and by his father's inability to learn from others what the boy was not yet able to tell him, gave a strange remoteness to everything but the things which count in an infant's world, food, warmth, sleep. Campton's nearest approach to reality was his daily scrutiny of the temperature chart. He studied it as he used to study the communique, which he now no longer even thought of. Sometimes, when George was asleep, Campton would sit, pondering on the days at Doulon. There was an exquisite joy in silently building up, on that foundation of darkness and anguish, the walls of peace that now surrounded him, a structure so transparent that one could peer through it at the rooted furies, yet so impenetrable that he sat there in a kind of godlike aloofness. For one thing, he was especially thankful, and that was the conclusion of his unseemly wrangle with Mr Brandt. Thankful that, almost at once, he had hurried after the banker, caught up with him, and stammered out, clutching his hand, I know, I know how you feel. Mr Brandt's reactions were never rapid, and the events of the preceding days had called upon faculties that were almost atrophied. He had merely looked at Campton in mute distress, returned his pressure, and silently remounted the hospital stairs with him. Campton hated himself for his ill temper, but was glad, even at the time, that no interested motive had prompted his apology. He should have hated himself even more if he had asked the banker's pardon because of Mr Brandt's pull and the uses to which it might be put, or even if he had associated his excuses with any past motives of gratitude, such as the fact that, but for Mr Brandt, he might never have reached George's side. Instead of that, he simply felt that once more his senseless violence had got the better of him, and he was sorry that he had behaved like a brute to a man who loved George and was suffering almost as much as he was at the thought that George might die. After that episode, 
and Campton's apology. The relations of the two men became so easy that each gradually came to take the other for granted. And Mr. Brandt, relieved of a perpetual hostile scrutiny, was free to exercise his ingenuity in planning and managing. It was owing to him, Campton no longer minded admitting it, that the famous surgeon had hastened his return to Doulon, that George's translation to the sweet monastic building near the sea had been so rapidly effected, and that the great man, appearing there soon afterward, had extracted the bullet with his own hand. But for Mr Brant's persistence, even the leave to bring one of Mrs Brant's motor ambulances to Doulon would never have been given, and it might have been fatal to George to make the journey in a slow and jolting military train. But for Mr Brant, again, he would have been sent to a crowded military hospital instead of being brought to this white haven of rest. And all that just because I overtook him in time to prevent his jumping into his motor and going back to Paris in order to get out of my way. Campton, at the thought, lowered his spirit into new depths of contrition. George, who had been asleep, opened his eyes and looked at his father. Where's Uncle Andy? Gone to Paris to get your mother. Yes, of course, he told me. George smiled and withdrew once more into his secret world. But Campton's state of mind was less happy. As the time of Julia's arrival approached, he began to ask himself, with increasing apprehension, how she would fit into the situation. Mr Brandt had fitted into it perfectly. Campton had actually begun to feel a secret dependence on him, a fidgety uneasiness since he had left for Paris, sweet though it was to be alone with George. But Julia, what might she not do and say to unsettle things, break the spell, agitate and unnerve them all? Campton did not question her love for her son, but he was not sure what form it would take in conditions to which she was so unsuited. How could she ever penetrate into the mystery of peace which enclosed him and his boy? And if she felt them thus mysteriously shut off, would she not dimly resent her exclusion? If only Adele Anthony had been coming too. Campton had urged Mr Brandt to bring her, but the banker had failed to obtain a permit for anyone but the boy's mother. He had even found it difficult to get his own leave renewed. It was only after a first trip to Paris, and repeated efforts at the war office, that he had been allowed to go to Paris and fetch his wife, who was just arriving from Biarritz. Well, for the moment, at any rate, Campton had the boy to himself. As he sat there, trying to picture the gradual resurrection of George's pre-war face out of the delicately pencilled white mask on the pillow, he noted the curious change of planes produced by suffering and emaciation and the altered relation of lights and shadows. Materially speaking, 
The new George looked like the old one seen in the bowl of a spoon and through blue spectacles, peaked, narrow, livid, with elongated nose and sunken eye sockets. But these altered proportions were not what had really changed him. There was something in the curve of the mouth that fever and emaciation could not account for. In that new line, and in the look of his eyes, the look travelling slowly outward through a long blue tunnel, like some mysterious creature rising from the depths of the sea, that was where the new George lurked, the George to be watched and lain in wait for, patiently and slowly puzzled out. He reopened his eyes. Adele, too. Campton had learned to bridge over the spaces between the questions. No, not this time. We tried, but it couldn't be managed. A little later, I hope. She's all right? Rather. Blooming. And Boylston? Blooming too. George's lids closed contentedly, like doors shutting him away from the world. It was the first time since his operation that he had asked about any of his friends or had appeared to think they might come to see him. But his mind, like his stomach, could receive very little nutriment at a time. He liked to have one mouthful given to him and then to lie, ruminating it in the lengthening intervals between his attacks of pain. Each time he asked for news of anyone, his father wondered what name would next come to his lips. Even during his delirium, he had mentioned no one but his parents, Mr. Brandt, Adele Anthony and Boylston. Yet it was not possible, Campton thought, that these formed the circumference of his life, that some contracted fold of memory did not hold a nearer image, a more secret name. The father's heart beat faster, half from curiosity, half from a kind of shy delicacy, at the thought that at any moment that name might wake in George and utter itself. Campton's thoughts again turned to his wife. With Julia, there was never any knowing. Ten to one, she would send the boy's temperature up. He was thankful that, owing to the difficulty of getting the news to her, and then of bringing her back from a frontier department, so many days had had to elapse. But when she arrived, nothing, after all, happened as he had expected. She had put on her nurse's dress for the journey. He thought it rather theatrical of her, till he remembered how much easier it was to get about in any sort of uniform. But there was not a trace of coquetry in her appearance. As a frame for her haggard, unpowdered face, the white coif looked harsh and unbecoming, she reminded him, as she got out of the motor, of some mortified Jansenist nun from one of Philippe de Champagne's canvases. Campton led her to George's door, but left her there. She did not appear to notice whether or not he was following her. He whispered, 
careful about his temperature. He's very weak. And she bent her profile silently as she went in. End of chapter 26